morning, everyone. This morning's reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 22. It's on page 1001 in the church Bibles, if you've got one of those. It's Matthew, chapter 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Good morning, everybody. I've not come from Asda doing my shopping. All will be made clear uh, as we go along, I hope. Short reading, but uh, no less challenging because of the brevity, I feel. So Johnny, uh, Johnny spoke last week about what it means to love, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this week we're looking at what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Quick question to, to kick us off, though. Does anyone remember the, uh, the soap program Neighbours? Does anyone remember Neighbours? Is it still on? Is it, is it on? It's on Channel 5. It's on Channel 5. Yeah, so gradually, like, the worse it gets or the less popular, it kind of gets higher up the channel spectrum, doesn't it? It kind of end up on Channel 27 in a few years' time. So um, Neighbours, for the, the uneducated among you uh, in the ways of uh, bad 1980s and 90s Australian soaps, was this, uh, this kind of bad, uh, yeah, bad soap, really, about a cul-de-sac of people and their general kind of infighting, uh, or so it seems. I've got my first prop with me this morning, which uh, is, is a bit of a, a valuable classic <laughs> to be seen on eBay at some point. This is the neighbor's board game. We must have actually bought this, which is quite embarrassing to admit. I don't know when it happened. It must have been my parents. Uh, I think it was my sister, actually, that it was bought for. That's why I'm going to stay anyway. Um, so yeah, neighbor's board game here. And the, uh, the brief uh, purpose of the neighbor's board game, I'll move that out of the way of communion in a bit because it'll be highly distracting. Um, the purpose of the neighbor's board game is that you have these various cards, okay, and you create the story of an episode of neighbors using, uh, using these cards. So I've got a few here. I've got um, some character cards. You might remember Scott Robinson. Remember him? Scott Robinson. We've got Charlene as well. Charlene, that's Kylie for those of you that aren't aware of who that is. We've got Harold Bishop, remember him? At one point he got lost out at sea and we all thought he was dead and then two years he came back, it was a miracle. Uh, we've got Madge Bishop, who's the uh, slightly unfortunate person married to Harold and sounds like she smokes like 80 cigarettes a minute. Uh, and then you've got Mrs. Mangle. Uh, these are my favourite characters, so those are the ones I picked. There are others in the game that you can use as well. 
And basically, with this board game, you use these characters, and then you have action cards. Ooh. And the action cards are what make the game exciting. So you associate the characters with these different action cards, and you build the plot line as you go along. And so you have these different action cards. I'll just read a few of them to give you a flavor. So you've got learns belly dancing. Interesting. Uh, gives Mrs. Mangle a piece of his mind. So you see what I mean? You put the character down, put the card down, you build a plot. Throws a pavlova at. Wears a see-through outfit to the Christmas party. That's a, an embarrassing one. Uh, finds out his car has been stolen. Robs a bank and decides to become a nun. So these are some of the kind of things that can happen to the characters in Neighbours. And these action cards introduce an element of conflict. As with Neighbours, the interesting bit is the infighting and the conflict and the difficulty. But the thing about Neighbours, which I always really liked, is it wasn't, it wasn't kind of like EastEnders, because EastEnders, you watch it, and I don't know about you, but it's just the most depressing program ever. I just watch it for like half an hour, and I just want to die. It's awful. Neighbours, the good thing about Neighbours was, it generally ended with a fairly happy kind of ending. Like, more or less, the neighbours in Neighbours in this cul-de-sac, they'd have a bit of a bicker, and then they'd all pretty much get along. As it says in the opening credits, with a little understanding, you can find the perfect blend. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> And I think they, uh, they, it usually works out because basically in this cul-de-sac of people, they're all pretty much the same. They're all white, middle-class, Australian, fairly friendly people. And so it's not that difficult for them to get along, but somehow they still manage to have the odd scuffle. Now, this is how we can interpret the Jewish understanding of what it was to be a neighbor in first-century Palestine. Jews tended to understand their neighbor to be other Jews. That was what it meant. If you said neighbor, that is what would come to mind. In this culture then, it was clear for Jewish people who their neighbor was, who the people they should care for were. So surely for us today, the most logical question is to say, who's our neighbor? After all, this is seriously important stuff. Someone says to Jesus, what's the most important thing that you know, more or less? And, uh, and, and he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Really, really important. So we should know who we have to focus our love on, right? We should know who are the people that we can love. I'm not sure that that's right. I'm not sure that that is what Jesus was trying to get across, because we already know the answer to the question, who is our neighbor, don't we? I think we do. Just as the Jewish lawyer in this uh, bit of scripture did in today's reading, regardless of what the cultural norms were for him and for us, we know we just don't always like it. So we squirm and we wriggle our way out, attempting to find loopholes and caveats and exceptions which excuse us from doing that which we know to be right. I've done it. I've been that person. You see, there is a similar encounter between Jesus and another lawyer in the book of Luke, in chapter 10. And in this encounter, the lawyer asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Another massive question. And Jesus then turns and puts the question back to him, classic Jesus fashion. 
And the lawyer, um, yes, yeah, so Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He's like, you're a lawyer, you know the law, what do you make of it? And the lawyer replies to Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Tick. Go to the top of the class. He's got the answer right. And so Jesus affirms his answer. And he says, yeah, go, do this and you will live. At this point, the lawyer fully knows what Jesus is expecting of him. He knows what we know, that our neighbor is the whole of humanity. But instead of just accepting the hard truth, he asks Jesus an additional question, a question that comes not from a genuine place of curiosity, but it's a question that acts as a desperate attempt to find a get-out clause. Who's my neighbor, he asks. In other words, where can I place the boundaries of my love? Where can I make the cut? Who can I rule out of my friendliness? Jesus replies not with a simple answer he's hoping for, but by telling him a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a parable that just shreds the rule book on neighborliness. This parable would have been deeply challenging to this Jewish lawyer. Firstly, because you may already know, the Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be ethnically contaminated through centuries of Sumerian people intermarrying with Assyrians, Babylonians, and Mesopotamians. But also, because they had uh, an alternative worship site on Mount Gerizim. You can actually still see this. There's like the remnants of this totally alternative uh, worship site where they'd broken off from the Jewish people and said, actually, we believe that the temple is on Mount Gerizim. And they built it. There's like a holy of holies. You can see like there's the whole outline of a miniature version of the Jewish temple on this other mountain. Really, really interesting stuff. But obviously to the Jewish people, this was hugely offensive because they, th they thought God told them to build the mountain on Mount Moriah. So for this pious Jewish man, hearing a story where a beaten up fellow Jew is ignored by two people of, of his own ilk, two people just like him, two Jewish holy men uh, nonetheless, a priest and a Levite, It would, it would have just been so difficult to hear this story about these people ignoring this, uh, this hapless person only to be rescued by a sworn enemy. It would have really hit him in the guts. And at this moment, the lawyer's worst fears are realized. Loving your neighbor, according to Jesus, really does mean loving everybody. Now, for the residents of Ramsey Street, we're going back there. Lighten the mood, Andy, lighten the mood. Uh, for the residents of Ramsey Street, this means they're not just called to love the main characters. We're not called to just to love the main characters. We're called to love the extras, those inconvenient people that punctuate our lives at random moments, and the people that are, are not like us. They're not like the other residents of Ramsey Street. They're not all white, middle-class, Australian, uh, comfortable, cul-de-sac people. There are other people, and I'll read some of them out. We've got the local fortune teller makes an appearance every now and then. How do we love that person? We've got a Lebanese belly dancer that invades Ramsey Street and starts causing havoc. 
We've got the milkman, obviously, sort of regular invasion there. Um, quite, a, quite a welcome invasion, just for any milkman out there, by the way, you like milk. <laughs> I'm sure I had a dream last night which involved milk. That's weird. Hey, sorry. Um, We've got a kind old man, uh, fairly easy to love maybe. The dentist, depending on your predisposition, you might love the dentist, you maybe not, that might be really hard for you to love. Uh, the village idiot, it actually says that on the card. We've got the village idiot, the local drunk, and the snotty-nosed kid from down the road. Okay, they might make an appearance in our lives. We've got to know how we love the extras. You know, for us, that could be the person from the weird church down the road that has the odd theology, or that they do stuff where they swing around incense, or that they, you know, talk about demons and stuff. Okay, we, we need to learn how to love these people. What about our overbearing in-laws? Or, I haven't got any, by the way, just put that out there. <laughs> really don't, really don't. We've got lovely in-laws. We both have, haven't we? Quite lucky. Um, <laughs> The taxman from HMRC, that annoying person at work that keeps stealing your stationery. The extras, how do we live them? But maybe much more importantly than this is people that have hurt us really deeply. People that we look at and we go, I don't, I don't know where to begin to love you. I, I don't even know where to start. I can't see any redeeming features in you at all. There are people like that. I've met them. I've worked with them. <laughs> it's really difficult. I don't at the moment. Again, lots of caveats going out today, aren't there? <laughs> Digging myself a massive hole. Oh, dear. Um, what are the reasonable limits of our neighborliness, I wonder? There are none. There just aren't any. Can we just get over that? Can we just say for a minute, look, there are no excuses. We can't, there aren't a certain groups of people that we can choose to love and other people that we can. We are called as Christians to love everybody. And that is a defining Christian feature. It's something that, is, that, that, that we are called to love people in a way that people outside don't. That is something that is supposed to be like a brand on us, like a tattoo. Something that is just so indelibly etched onto us that we can't take it off. You know, as I was reading this parable, I realized that Jesus, in an act of grace and kindness, you know, he did reveal to the lawyer who his neighbor is. But doing that wasn't his top priority. If it was, his final question to this lawyer would have been, so now do you understand who your neighbor is? Now do you understand that you're called to love everybody? But that wasn't his question. His question instead was, which of these three the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Which of three, these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The theologian James Edwards writes, for the lawyer, neighbor is a noun. The lawyer's neighbor is an object whom he owes duties, burdensome duties that he desires to avoid. For Jesus to prove to be a neighbor that clause, proved to be a neighbor, is a verb, a way of behaving towards people in need that gives both life to the giver and to the receiver. The point of this parable isn't to identify our neighbor because we know, deep down, we know who that is. It's to teach us that any two people have the potential of being neighbors but they only become neighbors when one person chooses to love the other. 
Understanding uh, the neighbor to be anyone who we love. What do we actually mean by that? What do we actually mean by loving someone? This is uh, really, really tricky. I think the first one to, to kind of put out there, which I'm going to kind of address reasonably quickly, is it says loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't think we should read too much into the loving yourself bit as that we're called in some way, you know, we're not able to love other people unless we kind of get our self-worth um, in the correct place and that somehow by loving ourselves, loving others flows out. I don't think it means that. If you look at the commentaries, it's much more about actually it's just an assumed thing. Like, we wake up in the morning, we brush our teeth because we don't want rotten teeth, we put our clothes on, we eat food, we drink water, we, we care for ourselves, and that's kind of what that means. But the second thing we need to grasp is that there is something about loving our neighbor that is like loving God. Jesus directly ties the two together. He says that the first commandment is to love God, and that the second is like it. How is, how is loving your neighbor like loving God? Well, as Johnny explained last week, there are some elements of loving God which overlap. So in the, in the Jewish worldview, you've got loving God with our heart and soul and strength, and that means loving God with our intellect, with our emotions and our actions, and this can manifest itself sort of vertically in our relationship directly with God, so through worship, through um, devotional acts, through Bible reading, through prayer, um, but it has to kind of flow out horizontally. It has to flow out into the world that we inhabit by loving the things that God loves, and God loves his creation. In Genesis 1, God creates and then he declares each element of his creation to be good but on the sixth day God created something that in his view considerably improved creation on the sixth day creation wasn't simply good it was very good what was it that shifted creation from being simply good to being very good I wonder it was the creation of you. It was the creation of me. It was the creation of people that shifted the whole of creation. He'd made stars, and he'd made galaxies, and he'd made nebula, and he'd made the earth, and he'd made things that swim, and he'd made things that fly, and he'd made things that crawl and walk. But none of them compare to you guys. Do you know that you're very good? Do you know today that God says that you are very good? And I don't mean morally, <laughs> FYI, before we all walk out with massive heads. Okay, um, the, the, the statement that we're very good isn't about that we're morally good, because actually, you know, if we admit it, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We've all sinned and fallen short. To be good is a comment on our value. There is something about people that is just different. There's nothing in creation. We can get the biggest telescopes. We can keep looking out and finding amazing stuff in space, billions of miles away. There is nothing in all of creation that is like people. And why is that? Because we're made in the image of God. We're the only thing in creation that bears God's image. You know, I love dogs. Yeah. 
bear God's image. They're great, but they don't bear God's image. I love fields and grass and mountains and trees and giraffes and duck-billed platypus and my pet hamster, Jake. Like, they're, they're all brilliant. I love them. They're not made in the image of God. They're different. It is only people. We have to get... You know, caring for people isn't like caring for the rainforest. As, as important as that is, I'm not saying that isn't important. It's really important. But people matter in a different way because we are created in the image of God. And it's for this reason that the second commandment is like the first. When we love a person, when we become neighborly to someone else, we're loving the image of God on earth. When we fail to love people, when we make divisions and separations and say, well, you know, I, I, I find it really difficult to get on with Muslims. I find it really difficult to get on with, you know, rich people. I find it really difficult to get on with black people. Whatever, whatever divisions we might make, if we're saying, actually, those people aren't going to be in receipt of my love, we're not loving the image of God. And, and I'm talking about, this, this kind of becomes difficult as well because it's not just about what people look like, it's what people have done. You know, when you st- I, I, met, I mentored a sex offender a while ago, a few years ago. Um, really, really uh, difficult, manipulative, you know, not a nice person, okay? I have to admit that there is something about that person that is made in God's image. It's easier for me to go, you know what? I'd rather just not think about it and I'll just label that person as a monster, label them as someone who's beyond hope. But Christians don't do that. We don't do that. We can't, we can't take people who've done terrible things and say they're not made in the image of God because they are. They might be marred, they might be tarnished. They might be, it might be that actually that God's image is so disguised in some people that, that we just don't know, we don't know where to start. It's easier to just not bother. It is. You know, it really is. You know, mentoring this guy for a couple of years. Seriously, I, you know, there were some days and I was just like, you, you know, you're just lying to me again. You know, it would have been easier to just not bother. But bother, we must. I think it's made uh, even more difficult as well because we just we don't understand. I think what what love is. I don't. I, th- I think we use love in society in a way that is, um, is is very different to the way that God intends us uh, to think about love. Uh, and there are various kind of confusions. I put these confusions in three kind of broad categories. So kind of bear bear with me a bit. The first is what I would describe as uh, flaky love. Okay, flaky love. Um, so, flaky love is the kind of thing that we can kind of fall into. I'm making too much noise. We can fall into and fall out of. And we apply, apply a bit of pressure and we just start crumbling a little bit. You know, we can fall into this kind of love and fall out of, and it's very feelings orientated. Um, but it's also the kind of love that we use to describe stuff. Like, I love my new jeans. I love my new iPod. I love Brussels sprouts. Like, really, you're going to use that kind of word to describe the word that we use when we're talking about the God of 
the universe, who created people that have something in them that's a bit like him, that's the image of God. We're going to use that word to describe that God. That, that's not, that can't be what God means when we say love your neighbor. That can't, that can't be right. So that's flaky, flaky love. I'm going to give that to Paul. He can hold on to that as a visual illustration. You might be able to wave it at some point. Yeah, you can. Yeah. So they're crunchy nut as well. That's an upgrade from standard. Who likes crunchy nut cornflakes here? They are pretty addictive. There's people like eating them out of the box, isn't there? We're just chucking milk in. Yes. Mm. Go for it. Um, God isn't calling us to love people like that. Yeah, it's just not, it's not what he's calling us to do. The second category of love is what I would call fluffy love. Okay, symbolized by this. This is the fluffiest, pinkest, cutest, cuddliest thing I could find in my daughter's bedroom. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, the second category then is, is fluffy love. And this is basically just being really nice to everybody. Okay, have we we've experienced that before, that kind of love? Yeah, really just being nice to everyone. Now, there's nothing wrong with generally being nice to people, okay? In fact, I would actively condone it. Okay, for the most part, being nice is nice. It's good. But all too often, and dare I say it, probably more in the Christian community than maybe outside, we go for a kind of, this is love, and at the expense of maybe speaking truth in real love, we kind of just trying to pussyfoot around and be nice to each other and, oh, you know, let's just try not to rock the boat, you know. I'm not convinced that that's love. I'm not convinced that that's loving your neighbor as God calls us to love people. You know, sometimes the most loving thing to do is to confront someone and say, dude, that is way out of line. You know, like, you really hurt me, you know, or you really hurt them. Stop it. Sometimes that's the most loving thing. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to call the police. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to testify against somebody in court for their own good or for the good of society. You know, there's, there's something about love which isn't kind of like this. You know, Jesus, if we think about it, you know, sometimes we, we create this thing with Jesus as well, don't we? We create, we think, oh, Jesus, meek and mild, and we think of him walking around in sandals and stroking lambs all the time. And it's like, that's not what Jesus' love was like for people. You don't crucify someone for being like that. Jesus was crucified. They, they gave him the death penalty. You don't do that for people that are like this. It's not nice people that change the world and turn it upside down. It's people that exhibit something different. You know, if we think about God, God is love, it says in God's word. God is love. Jesus was God, therefore Jesus is love. What did Jesus do when he saw the temple being abused? He made a weapon, guys. You sometimes overlook this. There's a bit in one of the accounts of the clearing of the temple. It says, he made a whip. Of course, Jesus made a weapon and he cleared out a whole temple full of people. And that's love. Some, we have to accept that that is love. That was a loving act that Jesus did. In that moment, there was something that was valuing holiness, valuing goodness. And that caused him to not be like this, but to be fierce in his love. People get crucified for stuff like that. You can have the fluffy bunny. By the way, there's no kind of um, association. I'm not picking people based on the fact that they're fluffy or they like cornflakes, so just putting that out there. 
And then there's, um, there's another one as well. This is a really hard one to describe, okay? Um, I'm, I'm calling this, <laughs> I'm calling this selfish love. So I've got a selfie to represent selfish love. Um, I think there's something about, there are forms of love which we can have, which are counterfeit, which look like the real deal. They look like their love, but actually we're not loving people for them we're kind of involved in a relationship to try and elicit what we can from the other. Um, it's probably quite kind of tied up with lust and things as well, or it can be. Um, and I think in, um, you know, in, in rom-coms and things, anyone who's seen a, a romantic comedy will know that the plotline norm is guy meets girl and they sleep with one another. Day two. <laughs> Guy and girl sleep with each other some more. Day three, drama happens, and so they both sleep with someone else. Day four, guy and girl realize they had better sex with each other than with their new lovers, and so they get back together again. Day five, drama gets resolved, and so they sleep with one another. Day six, guy and girl may or may not get married, but they definitely sleep with each other again. The end. Okay, that's basically a romantic comedy, okay? There's, I don't believe that that kind of thing happening is really love. I think it's far more about actually, what can, I, what can I get from you? And it's not always a sexual thing, okay? It can be, be other kinds of things, but sometimes we, we get into relationships or we make connections or we meet people for what we can get out of them rather than what we can give for them. So, the selfie thing, that's not real love either, Debbie, because you love me so much. <laughs> it's the best photo ever, that. It's really not. Um, God isn't calling us to love people like that either. So how do we love it? What is this love that God tells us that we need to have for other people? It's not flaky, it's not fluffy, it's not selfish. And it's not a noun either, okay? It's not a, it's not a thing that we can fall into, like we've fallen into a ditch, like we've fallen into love with someone, you know? It's not something we can fall out of uh, when it comes to loving God or people. It's not something we have for people, it's something that we do for people. It's an active love that favors, uh, favors yeah, the other over ourselves. The word is, um, is agapesis, um, and it's derivative of the word agape, but it's a verbal form. Okay, so agape is the noun, love. Agapesis is a particular form of the verbal form of that. It's doing, acting, being. It's a, a very active word. And there's only one symbol, really, that I could think of um, for that kind of love. And it's the cross. You know, Jesus chose just about the most agonizing way a human being could die. And he, he did it. He did it for us. There's no flakiness about the cross. 
There's no, I'm going to fall in or fall out, or oh, maybe I'll, if I don't quite feel like it at the time. There's no fluffiness about the cross. It was brutal. If anybody's ever seen The Passion of the Christ, it gives you some understanding of what the love of God is like for us. It's not selfish love. There's nothing, Jesus had nothing to gain for himself in the cross. It was all for you. He did it for you. He did it for me. It's a selfless, selfless, costly, painful love. You know, and it, it hurts to love people like that. Like we're called, we're called Christians. Christians is little Christ. That's what it means, little Christ. We need to be like little Jesuses all over Worcester. Amen, Johnny? Yeah, little Jesuses all over Worcester and where we are in our place, acting out Christ-likeness, cross, you know, cruciform life, where we are in our workplaces, in our, when we're doing our hobbies or playing cricket or whatever you do. I, I don't know what you do. But we need to exhibit a love for people that they can see is costly, that goes the extra mile, that goes further than people think we're willing to go for them. That is what the kind of love that God is calling us uh, to show towards our neighbor. Who will be the extras in your life this week, I wonder? Who will be those people that are on the fringe of your world? Who are those people that you wouldn't ordinarily speak to? struggle to speak to. By the way, I've done, some, I've done some small group notes on this, which are, are going out. Uh, and I've been fairly challenging in it, but I hope in the right way, to, to actually give people an opportunity in a safer setting to repent of some stuff. Because I think, you know, it's very easy for us to, so it's very difficult for us to admit um, prejudices, you know, yeah, actually, there will be people here, I know, that struggle with um, speaking to people that have got different skin colours. Just the odds are that that's going to be the case. Okay? There are going to be people that struggle to speak to people from different social backgrounds or different ages. Okay? Now, some of that isn't necessarily your fault in the first instance. Some, a lot of it is kind of absorbed and stuff that comes up from your culture and how, the way you were parented and things like that. But ultimately, there's a point where we need to go, you know what, I've got to stop making excuses. I can't, I can't make distinctions between people in that way. Um, and so we need to, if, if that's an issue for you, I just, I just want you to, to know that in love, like that repentance is a really good thing. You remember the guy, who's the guy that came to speak to us the other Johnny, yeah. So Johnny was talking about repentance as actually a really wonderful thing. And it, and it is. It's a really wonderful thing because it shows maturity in the body of Christ. You know, I, I just, I, I encourage you to, you know, grow in maturity. If, if you struggle with loving another, loving somebody that's not in your cul-de-sac, so to speak, loving the extras, just admit to it, to somebody. Repent. Talk about it. And... and be free. Like, ask for prayer for like liberation from that. Yeah, you want to be be free to love everybody. How can you prove to be a neighbour to those extras in your life this week? What uncomfortable social norms may you be willing to cross in order to care for them? I wonder. 
Um, to, to wrap up, I just thought, I, I, can't, I can't think of anything better than 1 Corinthians 13, where there's this description of, of love. Um, and I'm just going to read it to you slowly. And what I would encourage you to do, um, this is deeply challenging. Someone told me about this a while ago. It starts, love is patient, love is kind, and goes on with all these attributes of agape love. It's talking about the kind of love I've been talking about. What are the attributes of the love of God that he has for us? And what are the attributes that we should have for others? When I say like, love is patient, love is kind, put your name in where I say love. All right? So when I say love is patient, say in your head, if your name's Derek, Derek is patient. Yeah, Derek is kind. Derek does not envy. Derek does not boast. Okay? And you'll get a check in your spirit. If you, if you kind of say that and you go, oh, I'm not sure I could entirely mean that one. <laughs> it might be that God is telling you something. Okay? That he, he's saying, actually, well, maybe you need to work on patience. Maybe you need to work on kind, kindness. Maybe you need to work on not boasting. You know, and that's fine. We're not coming from a place of judgment. Everybody will probably struggle on this list. Okay? I read through it and I just go, no way, man. That is just on my best day. I can't say yes to all of these. So I'm just going to read this slowly. You might want to close your eyes. You might want to yeah, just let it wash over you and uh, hear this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. None. Love does not delight in evil. rejoices with truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen.